Hi, welcome to Physionic, where we learn the body from the macro to the micro. If that's something you think you'd be interested in, then consider subscribing. Today we're going to be discussing the second part of the Joe Rogan podcast, featuring Dr. Dom D'Agostino, featuring Dr. Lane Norton, and of course, Joe Rogan himself. Now, in this video, we're gonna be covering several different topics, just like we did in the first part of this breakdown. But uh, this one's gonna be talking about de novo lipogenesis. We're gonna talk a little bit about the paleo diet, as well as sticking to the basics. Does blood get diverted away from your stomach or from your muscles during exercise after you've eaten? Things of that nature and a few other topics as well. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump right in. though I, I disagree with their relevance. If you told me, okay, you take their general recommendations, eat limit sugar, eat more whole foods, eat higher protein. I think in general, that's pretty good recommendations for most people. I just, as you said, I'm anti-bullshit, so I'm not going to let you make claims about why something works when that's not why it works, right? Mm. So when we look at like the differences in diets, like I think what I would say generally to pr people is, Here's the great news as far as fat loss goes and health markers. If you want to lose weight, if you eat, if you control your calories, so you eat in a calorie deficit, you eat enough protein because protein helps spare lean body mass and is thermogenic, so it increases your energy output. Um, then you can kind of do whatever you want with carbs and fats and whatever you prefer, and you'll still lose the same amount of weight and get about all the health benefits. But it has to be something that you can sustain, because if you can't sustain it, you're going to put all that weight back on. That's what the research data shows. Discussing the first point made by Dr. Norton, talking at least briefly about the paleo diet. Uh, if you are familiar with the paleo diet, it is uh, essentially the idea of, well, as he said, limiting sugars, limiting carbohydrates to a certain degree, making sure that you're eating things that are more related to things that we are supposed to have eaten back in the day, talking about thousands of years ago. And that's an incredibly general idea of what the paleo diet is, but uh, you can certainly look it up and you'll find plenty of resources. I might list some down below if you're interested. Now, in terms of do you need to stick to a strict paleo diet to see all the health benefits? And that's the point that Dr. Norton is talking about. And the answer is absolutely not. You do not. Uh, mainly because, as he said, there are absolute offshoot benefits of the paleo diet that aren't specific to the paleo diet. And that's the important point to get across here. So he talks about limiting sugar. That's something that the paleo diet does and tries to promote is limitations on sugar and the limitations on particular foods that would just normally, if you limit them, that they are going to lead to better health outcomes. Uh, the main point, of course, being that you end up in a calorie deficit, you end up dropping weight if you are overweight, and that's going to lead to better health outcomes. And he also mentions that sustainability is the big key, and that is the big key. If you can stick to a paleolithic diet, then that's great. If you feel like that works for you, if that uh, set of rules works for you, then that's what you should be doing. But 
if you feel like it's a little bit restrictive and you feel like another nutrition protocol might be better suited for your psychology and for your adherence, then that is the diet that you should be sticking to. But regardless of any diet that you choose, as long as it fits that first parameter of being sustainable and being psychologically viable for your body and for your mind, then if it leads to the same results, it leads to weight loss, it doesn't really matter how you get to that point because it's going to largely lead to the same health outcomes. We had, okay, you gotta eliminate saturated fat, you gotta eliminate dietary fat, and just eat grains and limit your proteins, and we got fatter. And so the reaction to that was, don't eat any carbs, Saturated fat isn't bad for you. In fact, eat as much saturated fat as you can. It's great. Put butter in your coffee. Like, no, th there's good data to show that. The research data that I've seen, in my opinion, shows that saturated fat absolutely was demonized. It's not as bad as we thought. But it's if you eat too much of it, it's not great either. Especially with carbohydrates. Oh, absolutely. Because now you're increasing issue, your right? now you're increasing your liver production of saturated fats as well. Right. When your body gets to a fat burning stage, and then on top of that, you pile on carbohydrates, then your body wants to store those carbohydrates as well. With a calorie surplus. Well, yeah. you're, yeah. <laughs> you're actually you more technically you store the fats. You store the fats. Yeah, because carbohydrate. Yeah. You burn the carbohydrates to store. Them. Right. So carbohydrate. If you say, well, why does, if you don't store carbohydrates, so I talk about this in my book because people will go too far to each direction. They'll say, well, you said you don't, you only, you, you hardly store any carbohydrate as actual fat. Why don't we eat zero fat and mostly carbohydrate? Well, then your body, you know, your body's not dumb. Your body, we didn't, you didn't get here today and get through evolution and tens of thousand years of hard, you know, living by your body being stupid. So your body can ramp up de novo lipogenesis so that you can create fat from carbohydrate if fat gets low and carbohydrate intake gets Except high enough. Essential fatty acids. In this second clip, there are two main points that Dr. Norton touches on. One of them is our reactionary culture in which uh, in the 90s and moving into the 2000s, we had a certain uh, idea of what was healthy. And then of course now we have a certain idea of what is healthy. In the 80s, we had a certain idea of what is healthy. And it seems like this is, there's this constant zigzag from one extreme to another extreme, back to the other extreme, back to the other extreme. And it's this back and forth that leads to all kinds of confusion because people don't know what to believe anymore. And that's completely understandable. But the bottom line is, regardless of what you do, unless there are specific circumstances in which, well, for example, if you have some sort of health issue like you're diabetic, then leading to these extreme examples is most likely not the best way to go. And this does touch again on the first point that he made throughout this video is about sustainability, psychological health, things of that nature, but a balanced diet can certainly offer you if you consume enough fats, if you consume enough carbohydrates, and if you consume enough proteins dependent on your goals, modulating those is enough. And it's not only enough, it's fantastic in so many different ways. So making sure that you're not jumping from one point to another point to another point and making sure that you're able to contextualize that so that uh, you can land in that middle range and having that 
ability to be flexible and doesn't that's not necessarily a reference to flexible dieting it can be really just any balanced diet that you decide to implement is for sure in my opinion the best way to go mainly because uh, it takes into consideration the best elements of all the extremes and puts them down into one succinct point that you can stick to for long periods of time. Now the second point that he talks about is specific to de novo lipogenesis and this is something that Joe mentions and he actually gets it in reverse. So he mentions that if you eat carbohydrates then those are then stored as fat if you consume fat as well. So if you consume fat and you consume carbohydrates, which one will get stored? Joe says that carbohydrates will get stored. That is incorrect. Uh, the main reason for that is because during that process, if you're going to be consuming both, your body is going to start ramping up uh, carbohydrate oxidation. So it's going to start uh, metabolizing far more carbohydrates to get those, to clear those out of your system. And that's why we've got an insulin release. That's why we've got glucose in our bloodstream, all kinds of different reactions like that. But the actual fat itself, if it's consumed in tandem or at least close, that fat will then be stored. Now, if you continuously overconsume, then of course that more and more of that fat is going to be stored in your adipocytes and in other areas of your body. That said, Dr. Norton also mentions the actual process of de novo lipogenesis. And this is a relatively conservative process. So you would have to consume large, large amounts of carbohydrates, and then some of those will be then converted to fats. So in that respect, yes, it is absolutely possible to gain some fat from carbohydrate intake. Work. I think some of the animal work is almost more reliable because you have an inbred strain of animal and you have very tight control. If They're genetically identical. Freely living human, you know, he's doing many different things and there's genetic variability. Uh, but with animals, the, it may not always be predictive. It's informative, but not always predictive. And I think some of the, the data, I read some of the human studies and become uh, more confused. But going back to the animal data, I, I'm almost more comfortable with some of these outcomes for animal studies. So this next point is something that I think is really important to touch on and it's a point of actually pretty substantial debate in the science community when it comes to should we uh, put a lot of stock into animal research because you'll have instances, actually a lot of instances, in which uh, you'll run an experiment on an animal like a mouse or a rat or a rabbit or a cat or a dog or a monkey and what you'll find is that you find certain results and you think, wow, that's really exciting. And then you try and reproduce that in humans and it turns out not to be the case. Now that can certainly be very confusing, but there is a lot of merit to animal research and Dr. D'Agostino mentions that and I completely agree with him that he says something that's extremely poignant. So he says that it is not predictive, but it is informative. And I think that's a fantastic way to look at it, mainly because animal research can tell us a lot about the physiology of mammals in general. And then of course, then we have to specify that further and further and further until we get to clinical trials. And then we can specify that to specifically humans themselves. But the animal research, because of the physiology and because there's a lot of similarity, I mean, we're talking about like 99% genetic code uh, is the same between 
uh, let's say a mouse and a human-like animal, like an ape or uh, a human themselves. So you're able to create a lot of manipulation that you can't necessarily get out of a human uh, trial. So you can't go through and change a human's genetic code and breed them in a particular way that would be completely inhumane and it would make things, well, extremely difficult and extremely unethical. If you tried to propose that to the IRB, uh, you, which is a review board specifically for uh, reviewing the morals or the ethics of uh, particular research, then they would shoot you down immediately. They might even revoke any sort of future research just because they'd be so appalled. But it is because of that, because of the restrictions that we have on what we can do to humans, that animal research is absolutely invaluable, uh, that we get so much information out of it, and it tells us a lot of this mechanistic work that we can also get in cells, but it doesn't tell us as much as if you have an enclosed environment or an in vivo model. So Dr. D'Agostino's point about it being uh, informative but not necessarily predictive is absolutely perfect and the best way to uh, kind of set forth. So in the future, if you end up reading any sort of animal research, you can take that information and integrate it into your knowledge and understand that uh, that is most likely what's happening, but that doesn't necessarily apply to humans, and you won't be able to extrapolate that information and immediately apply it to humans until you see a human trial come out that shows the same results. Be active. That's a huge thing. Even if you're overweight, if you're active, you're, you're going to live fine. Well, on the whole, you're going to live longer than the person who's inactive. Uh, and then control your weight. So if you can eat in a, if you can get to a normal weight and maintain it, or sorry, normal body fat and maintain it. Or if you're a high body fat, if you can get to a lower body fat and maintain it, that's 90, that's 95% of the battle. All this other stuff is 5% that we're worrying about, that we're going back and forth about. And that's why I don't wanna miss the context. So this next point by Dr. Norton is actually well taken. Uh, I, really, I really appreciate the fact that he focuses and tries to push people out of the mindset of one thing is absolutely better than another thing and getting so drawn in by the details and the, the minutia that really don't matter when it comes down to it for the vast, I mean 99.9% .9 of the population sticking to the basics is what is most effective. Because if you can't stick to the basics, then everything else is useless. If you can't sustain something, then it's useless. And I realize that I'm harping on this because it's so, so important. But he makes two points here. So he talks about weightlifting is a key to better health. 100% true. If you do any sort of exercise, that is a key to better health. But certainly weightlifting, because it increases your metabolic rate, or at the very least, it maintains your metabolic rate. It also allows you to be functional later on in life. So there are a host of different benefits, that's just two of them, but there are a host of different benefits when it comes to weightlifting. And the impact that it has on your health, your blood markers, are, is not something most people talk about because they talk about aerobic exercise. And aerobic exercise has profound impacts on your health. So if you do both of them, 
you are golden in many, many different ways. But even if you were to just select one, I would certainly be partial to weightlifting just because of its mobility aspects and its strength aspects that most people start to fail later on in life. Now, the second point that he mentions is just controlling your weight. And the fact that he said controlling your weight, not being in the perfect weight range, having 8% body fat, 12% body fat, whatever it might be, but just going from being overweight to being normal weight makes a massive difference. So the, the use of the word control as opposed to always saying we should be losing weight, that's not always the case. Sometimes people need to be gaining a little bit of weight to make themselves healthier. Both of those points, perfect. Your blood is diverted to your digestive system and processes, and that's less blood for the muscle. So you're you're expending energy to that, digest, break down, that and assimilate is, food. That theory's been pretty debunked. Really? Yeah. I, but 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 something happens. I right? mean, it's just a fundamental yeah. physiological concept that you are diverting blood resources flow to, to yeah blood flow in particular. Job of a scientist is to question even those theories we hold most to be true. That's the <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson said that. Yeah. This is a point of disagreement between Dr. D'Agostino and Dr. Norton. So who is correct? What happens to blood flow when you consume a meal and then you go exercise? So uh, Dr. D'Agostino's point is that if you consume a meal, a large meal, small meal, whatever it might be, and then you go exercise, that you have blood that's being diverted away from your muscles and going to your digestive tract. Now Dr. Norton retorts back and says that that is a myth and that the reality is that blood flow is being diverted away from your digestive tract to your muscles. So who's correct? Well, Dr. Norton is the one who is correct. Uh, because what happens is if you consume a meal and it eventually gets to your stomach, gets into your, uh, the rest of your digestive tract, into your small intestine, what happens is blood flow is actually diverted because the main point that your body has to control is allowing your muscles to react. So in a situation, and I want you to think about this in terms of just a logical conclusion. So if you're in a situation in which you have a fight or flight response, let's say you've just eaten and a bear comes upon you, uh, your body is not concerned about the food that's in your stomach or in your intestinal tract. It's going to be flying blood to your muscles as quickly as it possibly can because you need to be able to outpace that bear. Good luck. But regardless, that is the priority. So your muscles take priority over your intestinal tract in that situation. This is actually also seen in runners. So what you'll find is people that run marathons or triathlons or really kind of really long extended uh, training sessions uh, sometimes they'll poop out blood. And the reason for that is because part of their digestive tract has actually died, uh, mainly because those epithelial cells need a certain amount of blood flow. And when you're exercising so intensely, and especially at high heat, that it leads to a lot more blood flow being uh, delivered to your skin, to your muscles, to uh, removing heat from the internal parts of your body outwards. And this is uh, an issue with hyper, hyperthermia as, as well as a bunch of other areas, but because you've got those muscles running so much. 
So in that situation, your epithelial cells can die and then you get a bloody stool. Now that's not exactly a huge point of concern because your epithelial cells do have a short turnover rate. So, uh, you know, very quickly you're, you're, you're going to have new epithelial cells in that area where those uh, previous epithelial cells have uh, passed away, passed on. So it's just an example, but it is a point that's certainly true. Dr. Norton is correct. Uh, it is a myth at this point, mainly because your body is far, far too intelligent to uh, have a meal get in the way of the success of your training session. That doesn't mean that if you eat a large meal that uh, you won't get, you know, maybe a little bit more tired or that you won't feel bloated or that it won't get in the way of your training. But in terms of the actual blood flow itself, that is certainly being diverted mostly to your muscles. Actually, I wanted to bring up intermittent fasting too, because I think, again, like if you, so the studies on intermittent fasting show that um, you lose the same, if calories are the same, you lose the same amount of weight, same amount of fat, uh, maybe might be at risk for a little bit more lean body mass loss just because you're triggering protein synthesis less, less often. But uh, you do have a little bit lower insulin levels, it seems like. Now, whether or not that's, again, beneficial based on the, the research that we talked about. Likely insulin sensitivity. Insulin sensitivity was a yeah. little bit better. Again, so there's some techniques you can do, but people bring up things like autophagy and uh, inflammation. And I again, I kind of get... Um, so if you if you just calorically restrict, you increase autophagy and you increase you decrease inflammation. Okay, so for this last segment, I wanted to touch on intermittent fasting, insulin and autophagy, which are discussed by both Dr. D'Agostino and Dr. Norton, but certainly more Dr. Norton. So Dr. Norton mentions that with intermittent fasting that you will not lose in Equated conditions, meaning you consume the same amount of all the foods, uh, but you use an intermittent fasting style as opposed to just a conventional eating style. Will you lose more fat with one than the other? The answer is absolutely not. So uh, you will lose the same amount of fat in both conditions. And then he quick mentions that uh, maybe you'll lose a little bit more lean body mass if you uh, IF intermittent fast, and that's certainly true as well. It's probably not something that you really have to worry about, but it is something to potentially consider. Now, the other point that he makes is on insulin. So he mentions that insulin levels might be a little bit lower, which is an interesting point. And then Dr. D'Agostino jumps in and makes an astute observation that it could be that you have increased insulin sensitivity. So that means that per molecule of insulin that attaches to the cells, you're going to get more glucose influx. So you are more sensitive to per molecule of insulin, which would mean then you would need less insulin to be released to get the same effect. And that's actually an excellent point and certainly something that could be the case in this situation. Now the final point is talking about good old autophagy. Autophagy has been a, a huge point of discussion for quite a time and there are several intermittent fasting gurus that love to say that autophagy is higher uh, during the process of intermittent fasting itself, during those fasting windows. And that is 
partly true. So autophagy is certainly going on during those fasting periods. But if you don't understand what autophagy is, then well, that's kind of a point that you should be familiar with. So autophagy is simply the ability for your cells to go through a bit of turnover. So it's going to take old organelles, it's going to take old proteins, things of that nature, and it's going to move them into what's called the autophagosome. The autophagosome then, uh, in conjunction with what's called the lysosome then starts to degrade the different organelles and starts to break it up into con constituent parts. So talking about different amino acids, uh, small parts that make up this larger structure like a brick making up uh, a house. And once it's got those parts then we, we're able to recycle them and some of them we end up excreting. So, it's essentially just this turnover basis that our cells use. And the idea is that if you have more autophagy, then you are in a healthier state because you're removing more of these older systems that uh, may not be functioning as well anymore. But the fact that IF has autophagy and that another conventional system of consuming food uh, doesn't is completely incorrect. Autophagy is constantly going. As you're uh, listening to this and as I'm speaking, we both have autophagy constantly running within our cells. So the idea that uh, you have suddenly far more autophagy is not necessarily a selling point for IF, or at least it shouldn't be, mainly because you should also consider the fact that you, ha if you have higher turnover, you would need higher protein synthesis to then uh, recreate some of these organelles that your cells are going to need. So having higher autophagy, all well and good, but do you also have higher protein synthetic rates? And are they, well, at least specific to muscle, are they higher muscle protein synthetic rates? So context matters substantially. Autophagy is always happening and it certainly happens in inter intermittent fasting, but it also highly, highly happens in just conventional eating as well. So that's not really a point to make much of a selling point on. And with all of that said, hopefully this content was useful to you, hopefully it was informative to you, and I hope that I have the pleasure of speaking with you in the very next one. Have a great one, guys. See ya.